Hi there, welcome to this Generics Bulletin podcast. I'm David Wallace, editor of Generics Bulletin. Hello there, my name is Duncan Emerson. I'm the Director of Custom Intelligence and Analytics for Informa Pharma Intelligence. And we're both going to discuss the UK's new biosimilar licensing framework um, and also some of the attendant issues around that, including the international context. Um, so, Duncan, just to, to recap, really, the, the latest announcement from the MHRA, um, can you go through that a little bit and tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, David, it's a very long document, so I'm going to try and hit the highlights. But essentially, it's um, it's a very similar guideline to the European Medicines Agency's guideline. There aren't really that many changes. Um, the European Medicines Agency's framework is pretty clear in as much that it's scientifically driven. But there are some specific changes in the MRHA documents that have, have caused a little bit of, um, well, they've raised a couple of eyebrows, shall we say. I think the key one for me is that there is they've, they've removed the need for a comparative efficacy trial. Yeah. Um, as long as this can't, as long as this can be justified, there is no need for a comparative a comparative efficacy trial now. So, I think w- one thing to make clear though is that, is that, uh, that those comparative efficacy trials could still be needed depending on the MOA of the product. If the MOA is not clear, or there are multiple different ways that a product could work, so for example, rituximab is a classic example. Um, there still might be the case for doing a comparative efficacy study, yeah. but. For the for the most part, those comparative efficacy studies um, won't won't be needed. Um, I think the other thing that's quite interesting is that the uh, the, the guideline it uses um, some odd terminology. Uh, they seem to have borrowed some wording from the FDA language. So they talk about interchangeability. So yeah. as you know, that you know, the, the 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 FDA's uh, biosimilar pathway. Uh, which is enshrined in the the BPCIA. Um, we talk about it colloquially as a 351K pathway. Yeah. They talk about the ability to develop an interchangeable biosimilar, i.e., a biosimilar that can be switched um, for the brand at the pharmacy level without the inter- without the intervention of a physician. Yeah. They, they're, they're kind of conflating two issues here. I think the language it talks about substitution not being permitted, which I would agree with. But they don't talk about switching. So I'm just wondering whether or not they've got their wording right. And when it comes to the comments for the guideline, I'm pretty certain that people are going to pick up on this uh, to make to, to make sure that the MRHA, MHRA sort of clarifies that clarifies themselves. Yeah, I, I think they're all interesting aspects. Maybe if we unpack all of them a little bit. I mean, obviously, this is all taking place in the context of Brexit and the transition period. And, and it's there really isn't a huge amount of time as things stand at the moment before this kicks in. Obviously, it's going to kick in from January. Um, it, it seems as though the comparative efficacy issue is the one that has really caught people's eye. Um, yeah. And as you say, the, the guideline seems to go through it and it seems to acknowledge that in some cases it will be needed, but it really seems as though that's going to be case by case. Is yeah. that your reading of it as well? Absolutely. And I think what we need to do is sort of take a step back um, and understand that since the biosimilars uh, market sort of was born back in 2004 with the first guideline, you know, the first approval in 2006 with uh, Omnitrope from Sando, you know, the European Medicines Agency and the CHMP have been very clear that analytics always underpins biosimilarity. Clinical studies are always done to satisfy that residual uncertainty that was always spoken about. I think we've moved on to a sufficient point now where analytics have become so advanced and sensitive. There are so many different tests that the companies are asked to do by the regulators that there just doesn't seem to be a justification now for asking companies to do all of those 
non-clinical analytically based studies and then do a two, three, you know, 400 patient um, confirmatory study in patients with the disease, be it brain cat, breast cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we are, we are now in a position now where I think analytics will start, um, start moving into, uh, start, we'll start having more of a, uh, a sort of directional role in terms of whether a product is biosimilar or not. Yeah. Yeah. And is that advancement in the science also behind the issue around the extrapolation of all the indications that the MHRA guideline mentions, the the idea that as long as the, the analytics are sound, they will happily consider all indications um, yeah. for the similar that are the same as the reference product? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you just have to, it's sort of taking things to its logical conclusion. If analytically a biosimilar product is seen to be um, highly similar to the reference product in you know all of the tests that have been done by these companies that it just doesn't make sense that it wouldn't work in all of the approved indications for the reference yeah. product you yeah. have to obviously um, make sure that the impurity profile is such that you're not going to get these unexpected safety issues in clinical trials and i think they've mentioned that in the guidelines to make sure that you know the purity of the product is as as, as good as it can be but yeah, yeah i mean i don't i don't i completely agree that now we're, we're moving to a point now where analytics will start superseding clinical from a regulatory perspective. We'll come yeah. onto it in a minute around in, in, the, in the market, in, in the commercial phase where these products are, uh, are available to physicians and patients, whether or not that is going to uh, be accepted by physicians and patients as much as a product that has got clinical data is, is, is an open question. Mm. Um, but ultimately, from a regulatory perspective, I've got, I've got really no concerns about that. Yeah. And I suppose those those issues around around patients and prescribers, that's also tied to the substitution aspects as well, isn't it? As you say, the interchangeability, it's an interesting term to use because, as you say, it sort of evokes the US version of interchangeability. But yeah. here they are, they are being fairly clear that they don't intend there to be any um, changes around the, no. the idea of substitution. Direct and, I think, and I think that aligns with the European sort of position now. We're yeah. getting a lot of... Uh, European countries, a lot of medical associations around Europe that accept the fact that, that switching um, is part and parcel of the biosimilar um, story. You yeah. know, in order to, in order to be able to uh, lower cost and improve access to these products, switching needs to be done. Um, and I think this this guideline um, aligns with that. But I think they need to sort of clarify some of their wording in relation to the interchangeability, potentially to make it a little bit more, a little bit more EU centric and mm. um, not use the same wording that the FDA does, because I think that's going to cause some confusion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It, it is obviously open for consultation, although it's being presented as what will come into effect from January. Um, presumably there is still some room for for some modification of that before January, as things stand. Yeah. Um, I mean, mo moving on to the kind of impact of this, maybe it'd be interesting to go through some of the aspects of of the kind of wider implications of this. Um, I mean, the first one you've already talked about the the kind of acknowledgement that analytical science has moved on, and that actually these advances have meant that uh, comparative efficacy data is not needed. I mean, do you think that's a significant acknowledgement in terms of the wider kind of global biosimilars arena? Do you think that's something that people will be pointing to? Uh, yeah, I think we are globally within the industry um, accepting the fact that analytics are taking much more of an important role, and you know, continue and will continue to have a. a an important role. I think what we need do need to do is to sort of take into account some of the geographical nuances in terms of levels of experience with biosimilar. Mm. Uh, like like I said, the you know 
the, the we've had biosimilars in Europe since 2006. We've had some extremely positive experience with biosimilars. We've saved a lot of money in Europe. Um, so this, you know, I would say it's a resounding success. You've only had biosimilars in the US since 2015, however, so they have mm. a lot less experience than we do. So, you know, if I was, you know, asked, I would say that the the FDA is unlikely to to um, align itself with this type of move um, in the near term. There may well be a time in the future where we start to see more of a um, sort of an international sort of alignment on this kind of thing. Yeah. But at, at this point in time, I think uh, while, while the UK is forging its own path post Brexit, they need to sort of they will they will be doing thing, a number of things outside of the European Union, not just regulating medicines. Um, yeah. I think you know, the FDA and potentially some other uh, countries around the world are likely to go into a period of watchful waiting to see how it plays mm. out. So to some extent, it's almost a kind of comfort level. Obviously, with the longer European experience with biosimilars, uh, they've maybe become more comfortable with it. Um, but it's in those younger markets, as you say, it's, it's actually going to take a little bit more time for this kind of thing to develop, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, looking at the kind of commercial implications of this, I thought it was interesting to see some comments from the British Biosimilars Association that it may make the UK more attractive as an initial launch market. I know that some of the concern about divergence from the European framework was that the UK would become a a sort of a separate market, a much smaller market, and that it wouldn't be as attractive as, as a large kind of European approval or a US approval. Um, I mean, do you think there's there's uh, something in that that the 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 new kind of reduced burden will make the UK potentially an attractive launch market? Um, I'm not so sure we're going to see much of an impact in the near term because you've got to remember that a lot of the clinical plans, the clinical development programs for these biosimilars have already been sort of agreed on and they're they're in process. Mm. Um, I think what you'll probably find is that for subsequent biosimilars that are, you know decided upon or chosen as, as targets for biosimilar companies in 2021, potentially toward the end of 2021, early 2022, that's where you'll start to see these types of approaches being um, uh, used. In the in the near term, I still think you're going to find that companies will go down the path of doing confirmatory studies. Um, yeah. And I think, as I've said before, I think that's purely based on the fact that um, they will need some clinical data in their back pocket to be able to convince physicians, payers, patients that their products are, are fit for purpose. I think we're still some way off uh, physicians, um, specifically the treating physicians, the ones that are managing these patients on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they're going to need some sort of reassurance that it's, these products haven't just been developed in a test tube, they've actually they've been tested in the clinic. Um, yeah. That's more for reassurance purposes as well. So. Yeah, I suppose to some extent as well, whilst this is going to be a divergent process, if if those trials have been conducted for all other markets and the, the other pathways, um, there's there's not going to be that huge knock-on effect for kind of for development. Yeah. That's that data is going to be being generated. Yeah, that's also something to consider is that you, you'll very rarely get a company that will have two distinct development pathways, one for the UK, one for the rest of the world. Mm. You know, they will, they will do what they believe they need to do to get approval in every market, be that, you know, PK, PD studies in early phase, uh, confirmatory studies in late phase in patients. Um, all of the analytics will be done regardless, obviously. Yeah. But then yeah. they, you know, you'll, you'll find you won't necessarily 
find companies saying, okay, this is our development plan for the UK versus this is our development plan for the rest of Europe. Yeah. Because I think that's just going to create extra costs for companies. It's also going to create confusion in the minds of, potentially confusion in the minds of regulators. And they'll say, well, why haven't you done this when you've actually done it for another country and vice versa? Yeah. So I think you, there's still a long way to go before this guideline gets ratified, as obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think there's going to be, uh, there will be, uh, companies will have to decide very carefully about what they do to make sure that they are you know, efficiently spending their R&D money, because obviously R&D money isn't, isn't fine, isn't infinite. Yeah. Yeah. And also touching on that divergence kind of in the context of Brexit, my understanding is that the, that Northern Ireland within the, the UK will still follow the EU framework, will mm-hmm. still follow the EU processes. Yeah, absolutely. So then you do have the uh, you know, the issues of the, the Northern Ireland, you know, the hard, potentially the hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So yeah. what do you do? Is it, is it, will it be possible to get a biosimilar version of a monoclonal antibody developed using the totality of evidence paradigm, as they call it, um, in the Republic of Ireland versus a product that's been developed using this suggested pathway from the UK, and, you know, availability being sort of less than miles apart. Yeah. It does, creates an interesting dynamic, and I think it needs, there needs to be some thought given to, um, obviously, tracking, tracing, patient safety, making sure that physicians aren't confused about what product's been developed and how, uh, so yeah, I think we just you know, to make, we need to make sure that everything's clear before any movement towards reducing the amount, the amount of clinical uh, uh, sort of development work in these biosimilars is done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that leads me on to another issue: is that there aren't there aren't that the, the MRHA isn't the only voice that's been expressing this desire to reduce the clinical burden for biosimilars. It's been this this has been a, a constant area of debate in the biosimilars industry for as long as I've been working in, in the industry. So for the last decade, there has always been this sort of conversation about, well, do we need these confirmatory studies? Um, what would it mean to uh, the amount of money that people uh, are spending on R&D? Can we reduce the you know, the cost of goods? Can we make biosimilars even cheaper if we don't need to do these confirmatory efficacy studies? So you have the, IG, the IGBA have put something out recently that's very similar to the MRHA. Yeah. Um, you've got similar people working for both MRHA or advising both both organisations. So there's, there's a, there is a similar message coming across. Yeah. You also you've also had uh, organisations like Avalier Health, and I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her name on a on a podcast. Gillian Wallet from Avalier Health. You know, she and a lot of her colleagues have been writing um, articles over the last few years, calling for a move from the totality of evidence paradigm to what they call the confirmation of sufficient likeness paradigm. And it's exactly the same thing. It's removing the need to do confirmatory studies because obviously these are expensive. They take a lot of time. And by removing them, you can increase speed to market and potentially decrease costs. Yeah. And as well, I suppose there are the kind of ethical considerations as well of, as well of unnecessary trials. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, talking about that international perspective and the IGBA policy paper, the impression that I've got from their comments more recently is that they've welcomed the UK pathway, but but they've also said that it really needs to be something that happens more coherently across the yes. world, that there is value in it, but that actually you risk causing a kind of two-speed divergence and it actually becomes counterproductive if you're if you've only got pockets doing it at the same time. Yeah, and I think that goes aligns with all of the conversations that we've heard in the past between, you know, the European Medicines Agency and the and the Food and Drug Administration in the US. You know, to all intents and purposes, they're 
their aims and objectives are the same to get biosimilars approved as quickly and as safely as possible. But there are subtle differences in the way that those regulatory regulatory agencies look at the world. There are slight differences that there is no interchangeability status at the at the European level, yeah. whereas there is one baked into the statute over over in the US. I think what you'll find this has this in many ways has the potential to create a third path, um, not necessarily a divergence from one to the other, but a third path. But I, I think we risk confusing people if we start having countries going off on their own and saying, we want to do this. We we want to be able to you know, forge a path of our own. We believe that uh, confirmatory trials aren't needed or whatever. Um, because like you say, there could be a risk of significant divergence within regions, within countries, but also globally. And that's one thing that we've heard quite strongly from the Medicines for Europe, for example, uh, yeah. the double AM in the US. So we need to coordinate more. We need to collaborate more. And in many ways, we need to sort of make sure that we are doing things globally as opposed to pulling off in different directions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that kind of global harmonization is, is always one of the goals of, of the off patent industry, you know, for small molecule genetics as well as biosimilars. But presumably that is quite a mammoth task to try and get regulators across the world to be moving at the same time and in the same direction. Absolutely. And I think we also need to be cognizant of uh, the sort of um, the, the time frame in which this new guideline has been published. Um, I mean, there is no right or wrong time to publish something like this, but what with COVID-19 still running rampant all around the, all around the world, regulators are focusing all of their efforts on trying to make sure that, you know, the drugs and the vaccines for COVID-19 are being approved as you know quickly, but also as safely as possible. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to find many regulatory agencies around the world um, lose you know, lose sight of the COVID-19 challenge and yeah. you know, divert their attentions to this. That's not to say that this isn't important. It's really important because you know providing better access to biologics around the world is really really important, particularly in developing countries. But uh, it, it, there's, there's, there is a potential for this to take a little bit of time to gain traction. Yeah, and I suppose there's all, also the the aspect of the the MHRA becoming separate from the European framework, essentially kind of duplicating the the applications and having to do them twice. That there's presumably a, a workload issue for the MHRA at the moment as mm, well. I know that that's something that the BGMA raised previously, that while they'd be looking with interest to the the actual frameworks that were laid out, they'd also want to know in terms of the manpower and the actual ability to to conduct these reviews. Um, yeah. I guess that's that's still to be seen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I um, agree. So, I mean, I mean, wrapping up, really, I think we've covered all the major aspects of it, uh, unless you think there's, there's anything that we've really missed so far. Um, but I just wanted to ask really what you thought. It's always very difficult to predict the future. But in terms of um, the kind of outcomes, short term and maybe longer term, I mean, we talked before about the fact that this UK guideline has been put out for consultation. I mean, I'm sure there will be people that, as you've already said, will want to make some comments, will possibly want to see at least some tweaks or clarifications from this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think we, you know, I would expect a tightening of some of the language. Uh, clarification of some of the things that they mean. Um, you know, you've got to remember that the vast majority of the European Medicines Agency's guidelines went through several rounds of review. Um, so nothing's perfect when it first comes off the printing press. So yeah. I, think I, I would expect 
a significant number of comments from both off-pattern industry by similar companies, but also the branded industry. Um, you know, you are likely to ex- you're likely to hear some fairly strong dissenting voices from the branded industry about um, making it even easier for biosimilars to get onto the market. Um, I think those sorts of companies are potentially losing share of voice because of the huge benefits that biosimilars have sort of presented to the European Union, uh, the safety of these products. Um, It's a tried and tested paradigm. And I think really, you know, in the cold light of day, all that the MRHA and all the OGBA are doing is trying to refine it even further to make it even clearer what what companies need to do to make it easier for these products to get into the market. Just to sort of fulfill their their desires to want to get these products onto the market as quickly, cheaply, and as safely as possible. Uh, yeah, and obviously time is time is very tight given that the the anticipated timeline for this is it coming into effect from the start of January. I mean, it feels Absolutely. like a very very tight time for these changes to be made. I mean, regardless of that, do you think? I mean, uh, we talked about the kind of global aspect to it, the global harmonisation. I mean, I'm sure other global regulators will be watching what is happening in the UK with with a certain amount of interest, seeing yeah. the, the final what form the final guideline takes, and maybe seeing how how they proceed with that once they start actually putting it into practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I've said, I think what we'll find is that the, the, the leading regulatory agencies, FDA, EMA, you you may even get you know regulatory agencies from as far from Japan, Australia, Canada, the developed countries that are aligning themselves with either the EMA or the FDA uh, paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. They will be watching, I think, quite carefully uh, to see how this plays out. I don't think you'll find many regulatory agencies making any statements of. Uh, yes, we're going to follow what the UK is doing until such a time as this paradigm, as this new paradigm has been proven to work. Yeah, well, as, as you say, I think it's it's very much going to be wait and wait and see, and it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out. But um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you about it. I think there's some very interesting points come out of it, and it'll be interesting um, to see what, what develops in future. Um, but for now, I'll say thanks, and uh, it's been very good to speak to you, um, yep. and will be good to perhaps touch on some of these issues again in future. Absolute pleasure, Dave. Um, I'm more than happy to help. Excellent.